Have you ever wondered if the creation myths we know that originated in the Near East spread elsewhere? And if so, what happened to them? Was their influence lost or did they influence other traditional religions of the Indo-Europeans? You see, thousands of years ago, Neolithic farmers from the Near East migrated over a number of generations through Anatolia and into Europe and brought with them this creation myth to explain the world around them. But if they did this, then where is the evidence of this? Are remnants still visible despite later Indo-European expansion into Europe? And what is the implication of this on traditional religions, especially those that some consider strictly Indo-European? For example, did you know that the creation myth of the Hebrews, which is the biblical genesis, is itself a collection of regional motifs that have themselves been diffused from other cultures, with many almost certainly from ancient Sumerian myths. And if we look closely, can we see any European creation myths showing traces of these diffusions? In this video, I'll trace the creation myth of the Near East and show how it has influenced some of the European creation myths we know today. We'll explore maps and scenes from relevant myths to help tell the story of how this myth spread from the Near East into Europe and shape the way we think about the origins of our world and ourselves. And if that sounds interesting, then grab yourself a cup of tea and welcome to Crackenford. The Sumerians were a culture that started around 8,000 years ago in southern Mesopotamia and produced some of the oldest writings we know about. And this writing proves a very useful source of mythology, as it is a primary source of information directly written by the culture itself about its own beliefs. And within these writings, we see traces of the biblical motifs of Genesis, such as the myth of Paradise of Dilmun, and this is the story of Dumuzi, a bad-tempered shepherd who antagonises a peaceful farmer in Kimdu, a story which is reminiscent of the story of Cain and Abel. Although the roles of the farmer and the shepherd, or we could look at this as the pastoralist and the agriculturalist, they're reversed and there is no murder. And we also see a flood myth with the flood hero Ziusudra, which is then replicated in the epic Gilgamesh and then with the flood of Noah in the Hebrew Genesis. But there is a significant difference, and that is that the god of the Hebrew tradition is a superior god compared to others within its mythology, the ultimate supreme being. And we see this evidenced as the Abrahamic god is clearly separated from the mortality of people in myths such as Cain or Noah, and of course Adam and Eve. And many believe this is because Abrahamic monotheism was influenced by Akhenaten's heresy in 18th dynasty Egypt, which is the middle of the 14th century BCE. And from this, there came the emergence of a linear time concept within their stories that tends to fuse the mythical and historical timeline, allowing the culture to stress a uniqueness of a god with a canonical story rather than the cyclicity in myths from the surrounding cultures. And this explains why the heroes and protagonists of Sumerian myth were divine, or at least semi-divine. Gods could die and rise and be 
as Jan Puvel explains it, recycled, and thus we see recycling occur when Dumuzi becomes the Babylonian Tamaz, who evolves into the Syrian Adonis and the Anatolian Attis or the Egyptian Osiris. But despite these differences in these recycled myths, the theogony of ancient Near East tradition is clear if you know what to look for. And what we are looking for is a myth with generations of succession are conflict and usurpers, sons killing fathers, then sons marrying mothers and sisters, which gives a dynastic depth, a history to any current layer of ruling divinity. And I talk about this creation myth structure in my video on the oldest cremation myth if you want to understand this further. As for us and our journey, to find and follow this myth's journey we need to start as close to our earliest source as possible and that is the Babylonian creation myth which we are confident evolved from the Sumerian creation myth and can be found within the Enuma Elish and which tells of how the incumbent ruling god of Babylon, Marduk, came to achieve and consolidate his reign and I'll give a synopsis of the story as it allows us to have a benchmark on which to compare others. In the beginning, there were a pair of primordial beings representing fresh water and salt water, and their names are Apsu and Tiamat. And where these beings come together, this intertwining allows a host of other deities to come into existence. And for us, the most noteworthy of these is Ea, the god of wisdom and magic. Now, as all older people will confess to, the younger generation becomes unruly and troublesome. And so Absu wants to destroy Ea. But Ea is quicker and more decisive and slays Absu first, leaving Tiamat widowed. And from this point on, Absu remains an, an inert entity, the mythical sweet water ocean beneath the earth that is home to Ea, and it is here where Ea produces Marduk. But whilst this is happening, Tiamat plots revenge by enlisting Ea's half-brother, Kingu, and offers him power and control if he wins this battle. However, the time which passes as preparations take place sees Marduk grow up, given powerful weapons. With the help of some magical wind and a well-positioned arrow, Tiamat is defeated. Her head is removed, her body cut in two, and is used to create the heaven and the earth. And King U is sent to the god of death, and thus Marduk is established as the chief god of Babylon. Now within this myth are some motifs that are worth noting. The earth and heaven are formed from the sea, and the sea was now the ruling deity's grandmother, and his home is the watery corpse of his grandfather. This seems relatively straightforward until compared to some other stories from other Mesopotamia myth. And so to understand this more, we can examine a local theogony from the town of Dunu, whose population was considered part of the Babylonian culture and whose story is found on a tablet in the British Museum and was translated by Wilfred Lambert and Peter Walcott. This creation myth of Dunu, around two and a half thousand years old, starts with a pair of primordial beings, a male called Hain, and a female who represents the earth. These beings use a plough on the sea to give birth to a son, as if there is any need to emphasise this is a myth from agricultural people, 
and the earth then seduces and marries her son, who then kills his father, Ain, and so succeeds him as ruler. But then Amakandu decides to marry his sister, the sea, and with her has a son, Lahar. And Lahar then kills his father, Amakandu, and marries his mother, the sea, and reigns. Lahar then has a son and a daughter with the sea, and the daughter is called River, and we see his son marry his sister River, and then kill both Lahar and his mother, the sea, and then reign. And so, I hope you get the idea. This pattern goes on for a number of generations before the quality of the tablet from which this is translated becomes so poor it can no longer be read and thus translated. And so, within these myths, with traits of patricide, matricide and incest, we see sons slay mothers and fathers alongside them marrying sisters and mothers. But what if we go back another thousand years to an older story around three and a half thousand years old? This would be from the Hittite Empire, and there we find a story of the Bugazkoi region in north-central Turkey. The inscription, it is taken, well, from the Hittite language, but it is considered a translation of Hurrian, which would make it originate from the northern Mesopotamian region. This story starts with the god Alalu, who rules in heaven for nine years before having a faithful son whose name is Anu, and he can be considered identical to the Sumeru Akkadian god whose name means heaven. But we then eventually see Anu taking Alalu's place by deposing him down to the dark earth. Then we see Anu's son, Kumabi, replace his father's actions by deposing his father after nine years of ruling in heaven. Anu tries to escape his son, but Kumabi snatches him down from heaven by his feet and bites off and swallows his genitals. The now emasculated Anu tells his son that by swallowing this body part, he has impregnated himself with five deities, including Teshub, the storm god, and Aranzar, the river goddess of the Tigris. Kamabi then decides to terminate this pregnancy by spitting out the sperm. When that fails, he then attempts to devour his offspring after they are born. But this too fails, and so Teshub, the storm god, grows up and defeats Kamabi. Although the text of the inscription is quite corrupt and so we lack specific details on what actually happens. But we do see that the defeated Kamabi then cohabits with a rock and saws a monster made of diorite and this monster is called Ulikumi and is to be used as Kamabi's secret weapon against the now ruling Teshub. Ulikumi is then attached to the shoulder of a cosmic giant, Upeluri, who is standing in the sea, and he starts to grow, getting taller and taller until much of his body is now out of the water, and he is so tall that he can reach up to the heavens and threaten the other gods. Now the sun god spots Upeluri reaching up and warns Teshub, who weeps in despair. Teshub's sister, Ishtar, tries to divert the attention of Ulikumi by offering him sex, but the monster is both deaf and blind, and so Ishtar's approach fails to work. But being deaf and blind doesn't limit Ulikumi's threat. So the gods retreat from the battleground, which is around the Mount Hazi, which is on the Syrian seashore. And they go to Teshub's last stronghold of Kumia. But Ulikumi continues the pursuit, remaining on the shoulder of the giant Upeluri. And it is at this moment of utter peril that 
Teshub's brother and advisor, Tasmishu, suggested they visit Ia for advice in his home made from Apsu. This they do, and Ia then goes to talk with Upelui and asks him if he knows the monstrosity is growing on his shoulder. Upelui does not realise that Ulikumi is there, and so now allows Ia to cut off the feet of the Darite giant with a primeval cutting tool, which then renders the monster powerless and thus allows the gods to defeat him. And so at this point we find the text is so corrupt you can't read any more. And it is with these translations of stories that we can come to a key understanding of the diffusion of the myths of the ancient Near East, as they show that by the latter half of the second millennium BCE, the creation myth had spread from northern Mesopotamia to Anatolia. And we can confirm this as elements of the Sumerian and of the Akkadian myths are visible with the appearance of gods such as Ea and Anu. And then they are applied to a very specific set of events, which we can then summarise as a shadowy first god is succeeded by one whose name means heaven. Heaven is deposed and castrated by his son. The son feels threatened by his unborn or newborn offspring and tries to protect himself by trying to eat them. And the attempt to terminate the offspring fails and he is overthrown by his son who becomes the ruling storm god. And finally, the deposed father creates a monstrous enemy as his last ditch champion. But the storm god and his followers eliminate this threat and consolidate their rule. And we can follow this into Greece such that by 700 BCE we find this myth in the Theogony of Hesiod. By 100 CE is found in the Phoenician history of Philo of Byblos and in the book known as the Library of Allopodorus. Before 500 CE it is in the Dionysica of Nonus of Byzantine Greece and by the end of the first millennium we then find it in the Persian book of Kings, the Sarnamar of Ferdasu. Now it's important to note that None of these versions match one another to the point where they might draw a dispersal route of transmission. And so I can't really draw a map showing that dispersal route, but all are clearly variants of the same proto-myth whose earliest attested form is the Hurarian Hittite one. Much like many followers of the Abrahamic religions doubt Indo-European influence within some of them, despite showing clear evidence of this, let me now here show you how the Near Eastern mythology came to Europe to influence the Indo-European cultures. And despite what many people say that this isn't the case. And I will do this by now taking a look at those stories that ended up in Greek culture. So whilst we see Homer naming Okeanos the ocean as the origin of the gods, and so their Dionysus we see Hesiod write how it is the earth, Gaia, who gives birth to heaven, Uranus, and then marries him. And it is between these two that they then create the Titans, among whom is Okeanos and Kronos, both of which are important to our story. See, Uranus abuses his offspring, and so Gaia conspires with her last-born son, Kronos, in a bid to prevent this. So... At the moment, Uranus gets ready to cover Gaia in a primordial hug. Kronos severs Uranus's genitals with a jagged sickle 
and her genitals fall into the sea and from their foam is born the goddess Aphrodite. The mythology of this event is placed near Cyprus and as I have shown, Aphrodite's origin is of near eastern origin from the great goddess of love and so the Phoenician Astarte, the Anatoly, Kybele, the Akkadian Ishtar, the Sumerian Inna and the Egyptian Isis as well as others. And so the ocean, the sickle, the injury and the goddess, well all this points to a near east source of the myth. Yes the details of the myth may differ but the core story remains and this is what we need to follow. And it is the act of castration that removes Uranus's power and with that he loses his place amongst the gods although he is not killed off he's just left merely as a god without power or purpose from this point rather than becoming the bloody mess Mesopotamians tend to apply to their myths and this removal of Uranus leaves Kronos to become chief god now Kronos the equivalent to the Roman Saturn, marries his sister, the Titan Rhea, and lives in the fear that his offspring will do to him what he did to his father, Uranus. And so to prevent this from happening, he eats his children, but except he doesn't succeed as his youngest child is replaced with a rock, and Kronos doesn't notice and eats the rock. And <laughs> The youngest child survives and grows up in secret and becomes known as Zeus. And so when he becomes of age, he manages to get various allies together to overthrow Kronos and forces him to regurgitate his children. And this act then makes Zeus the chief god. Ruling heaven, the weather and storms. And he is a combination of all these gods' influences and becomes a superior god to all the other gods in the pantheon and to end the story the titans are then placed in tartarus which is a deep pit in the underworld and from what is probably a separate tradition being kept in myth Kronos is then sent to the elysian fields which i've touched on in this video now up until this point the stories of hesiod and apollodorus differ only in their details and the story authored by Nonus really has little to add to this. But when it comes to the next episode of this story, and the final enemy, so to speak, then the three stories complement and supplement one another in important ways. See, Cronus's mother Gaia had a son with Tartarus, not the place in the underworld, but a, a primordial being in the Greek mythology of the same name. And this son was named Typhus or Typhon. Now, what is interesting is that some scholars say he was born from an egg impregnated by Kronos, and the location of this egg was in Cilicia, in southern Anatolia, and not far from Mesopotamia or Cyprus. And in Impolydorus's story, he too places the birth in Cilicia. Hesiod describes Typhon as having a hundred heads of snakes growing from his shoulders and Apollodorus and Nonus also agree that there are snake-like properties about Typhon and so it was that this snake-aligned monster was Cronus's last and best chance of reversing his fortunes. 
Nonus describes Typhon's advancement into battle in a way that aligns with that of Ulikumi from 2,000 years earlier. He writes that there stood Typhon in the sea, his feet firm on the bottom, his belly in the air, and his head crushed in the clouds. Hesiod is more concise and he says that Zeus simply sears the snake's heads with his lightning bolts and hurls Typhus into a heap down to Tartus. However, Apollodorus has Zeus wounded the monster with a sickle, which aligns closely with the cutting off of Ulikumi's base. When this happens, Typhon flees to Mount Cassios in Syria, which could be the same mountain as Mount Hazi in the Ulikumi myth. And on this mountain, Typhon wrests the sickle from Zeus and cuts the sinews of Zeus's hands and feet. Typhon then leaves Zeus's body in the Corsian cave in Cilicia, and here we see what seems to be an, an obvious addition to the external myth of Anatolia, and that is also preserved in Hittite. And this addition has the dragon, Eliuyankes, robbing the storm god Teshub of his heart and eyes. In the Greek flavour of the myth, Zeus ultimately recovers his sinews through the intervention of a trickster type gods, although these differ depending on the story, with Hermes and Aegipan in the Apollodorus version of the story, and Corican Pan in Opion's Alicuta and Cadmos in Nonus version. And with Zeus fully recovered, he ends up burying Typhon alive under Mount Etna in Sicily, where he continues to rumble and breathe fire from time to time, even today. And so, following the myth in its various forms like this, we can see how tradition must have diffused from the Near East to Greece over at least a couple of thousand years, although details do change. But there are core components of the story that persist, such as the snake-like Typhon, which is equivalent to the stony Lycumi. But what is interesting is their posture is the same, especially in the latest of the Greek sources from Nonus. You see Uranus's genitals are severed by a jagged sickle, whereas Anu's are bitten off. But this primordial sickle appears in both stories of the Ulikami and Typhon. Kronos and Kumabi are matched with the castration of their fathers and their cannibalism of their own offspring, but Kronos regurgitates them afterward, whereas Kumabi tries to abort them by spitting out Anu's seed. And so it is through these similarities we can infer that we are dealing with different versions of the same creation myth, despite being thousands of miles and years apart in the making. But we still haven't answered how the Neolithic farming creation myth arrived in Greece. It seems most likely that the Hesiodic version came to Greece via the Phoenicians around the 8th century BCE, and Apollodorus and Nonus built on it with versions of myth that probably travelled through what is now modern-day Turkey. But we do see a later Phoenician version in the fragments of Philo of Biblis's work through Eusebius and Porphyry preserving these writings as part of their work with the church. Here Philo provides a Phoenician-influenced theogony starting with Elian, which is, means the highest in the Greek, and his wife is Bruth, which means Beirut, and who settles at Byblos. So, Elian is a figure that is reflected in the Hittite Hurrian Alalu, and in this story, Elian and Bruth give birth to Uranus and Gaia, who marry and produce four sons, notably El, whom Philo also calls Kronos, 
And then there is the ever-present conflict, and El and his brothers take Gaius' sights. Uranus then t- tries to destroy them, and El makes a weapon that is sharp, but what it is exactly, we don't know. But we do know that it is used to defeat his father. And so his father, Uranus, is forced to leave Bolos, and El now reigns, and he turns into a tyrannical leader and kills a son and daughter. Now the exiled Uranus then sends three of his daughters to try and negotiate with El, but El marries his sisters and sires a number of offspring, most notably, uh, or the most notable of which is Baal. And 32 years later, El lures Uranus back to Babylos and in an ambush castrates him. We then see Baal take over the kingship without much trouble and Typhon figures simply as one of numerous offspring of El. We also see in what can only be considered as an afterthought, El then castrate himself 32 years after mutilating his father. Now, this version of the myth looks like our original myth, but scrambled up and is left as a dynastic history of the Phoenician city. So why do we see the delayed castration, especially when it is unrelated to the loss of rule? And why do we see Baal and Typhon, yet the impact on the story is so very light? Well, the answer is, you just do not know. But without a doubt, Philo's work is a Hellenistic concoction by an educated Greek speaker and and Greek writer who knew Hesiod's work and who could freely merge ancient myths with the Near East. But we also know that the Semitic El and the Hurrian Kamabi are identified in Ugaritic texts as early as the 2nd millennium BCE. And since we now know that Kamabi is the equivalent of the Greek Kronos, which we see via the Hurrian Hittite diffusion, we can say with confidence that Kamabi, El and Kronos represent the same being. And so this allows us to be confident that Philo didn't just make this up. But there is a lot that is out of place, the second castration especially, but these are reminiscent of later traditions, especially Orphic Theogony, which sees Zeus castrate Kronos as a form of revenge, or perhaps it is better put as poetic justice. But there may also be some more to this, and this may become clear if we look at one final myth. In the Iranian Book of Kings, we see... The Iranian poet Perdasi talk of a theme of heavenly dominion applied to the 4th, 5th and 6th kings, and so Jamshid, Sohak and Feridun. These kings are each famous in their own right, and there are no genetic ties between them. But the way Perdasi's plot ties them together has many of the elements reminiscent of this heavenly kingship theme. Jamshid, the primordial king and hero, is ultimately brought down by pride and sinning. He loses his regal nimbus and is overthrown by the intrusive monster warrior Zohak. Zohak has snakes growing from his shoulders, very much like a certain Typhon we know of. But these snakes must be fed with children's brains, which is very much like a cannibalistic Kronos. In this story, Zohak waits a hundred years before hunting down the dethroned Jamshid and sawing him in two, a delayed mutilation that could be considered reminiscent of 
Ell's castration of Uranus in Philo's work. Then see Zohark also married two sisters Jamshid, which is another rather random and curious detail that aligns with Philo's version of the story where El marries three daughters of his predecessor, Uranus, and here we see that Zohark is ultimately overthrown by Feridun, who is Jamshid's grandson, and as Zeus was, he must be protected as a baby from the murderous intentions of Zohark. And when Feridun grows up, he wields a cow-headed mace called Gurz, a weapon that could be considered as aligned to uh, Zeus's thunder weapon, and with it, he overthrows Zohark and takes him to Mount Demanvent, where he is held in chains and left to perish in the elements. And from here, Feridun rules a simple but heroic royal lifespan. And so the story of the kings then continues. And this Iranian parallel was discovered in the late 1940s by Stig Wikander. And it was Wikander who then also concluded that this was a myth of Indo-European origin independently preserved in Greece, Anatolia and Iran. But myself and other scholars disagree, as we should expect to find remnants of this myth, if Indo-European in older Indo-Iranian records, at least such as the Vedas or Vestas, and not in an epic of the Islamic period, written at a relatively modern time. To me, this myth is textbook comparative mythology showing the diffusion of a Near Eastern creation myth into Europe and which certainly had influence into the Indo-European creation myth with many scholars suggesting that the sickle to castrate turns into the sacrifice of Yemo. I personally think it is more complicated than that. The twin primordial beings and Yemo meaning twin are probably linked and the sacrifice of one of the initial pair has turned into the sacrifice of the primordial being whose name means twin as a replacement to the incestuous murder and then turns up in primary generations of the Near Eastern cultures. And I feel there are clues to this simplification out there and I will talk about these in a future video. But to conclude this, the Neolithic myth of creation from the Near East travelled into Europe, influencing European cultures and the Indo-European myths of creation. And if you understand this, then you can understand that the Indo-European myth of creation could also have influenced the Near East, as I talk about in these videos. Now the people telling these two creation myths did mix at a cultural level at least, but what is also important is that we understand that these two cultures were not the only ones in the regions of the world we're talking about. There were hunter-gatherers, both east and west, and other mixes. And these two have left marks in mythology. And I will talk about all this in future videos. So please subscribe and hit the notification bell if you want to be notified when those videos are released. So I hope that all makes sense and you enjoyed those myths and how they all relate and how they show diffusion from the Near East into Europe. And I want to thank my patrons for all their support. I want to thank you, the viewers, for watching. And with that, please stay safe and well. This was Crack and Falls.